Are you rethinking your life? This is the best time in history to work remotely or retire in paradise. The world's tropical real estate listings are right here. We know the protocol to narrow it down and point you in the right direction. Get the lowdown. Tell us what you're looking for. Via email, our address is printed in the episode notes. From Studio B and from the seat of my pants in beautiful downtown Cabaret, welcome to Tropical Paradise Waits. I'm Franco. You can find the cost of living, weather information, hotel rates, and airline fares anywhere. But listen here and broaden your expectations. Get the real feel, the human factor, hearts, souls, smells, vibes state of mind from those who are the lifestyle you won't know no till you go go tropical paradise waits for you what are you waiting for hola amigos this is don alejandro de la vega welcome to tropical paradise waits do you ever dream of living in paradise dream no more my friend if you are planning on living in the tropics, or if you are a full-on expat, this show is the show for you! Listen and learn how to make the best of your leisure time. It takes more than a plane ticket to fully enjoy the tranquil lifestyle. It is a state of mind. Let's live a better life! Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review of Apple Podcasts. Positive reviews help us rise up the ranks. Please scroll down and click Support This Podcast. Gracias, and enjoy the show. Today's show is part two of the tropical nightmare from inside the prison walls at Guantanamo Bay Prison Camp. If you haven't already, go back to last week and listen to part one first. Today, we'll pick up where we left off, transporting detainees into Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. As history has it, the truth surfaces 20 years later, and this story is no different. Let's listen to more truths from attorney Robert Kirsch. I think when we, when we left off before the break, uh, we had everybody on the plane flying to Guantanamo. And what, what everyone needs to remember, and uh, those of us who are old enough will remember the photographs, this was not, uh, this was not a first-class 747. This was essentially a uh, stripped-down cargo plane with men uh, shackled at the knee, shackled at the ankles, shackled at the waist, still wearing hoods, still wearing sound suppression stuff, all sitting on the floor of a jet with American military guards standing around them, essentially being being flown as uh, almost almost as cargo to Guantanamo, all shackled up. And before going to before going to Guantanamo. Uh, at least in the case of our men, I can't say that this happened for anyone else, but the men, and remember that this was in Europe, uh, in a cold part of the world, which was which was uh, Turkey at the time, were essentially st stripped down to like a cotton hospital Johnny, uh, 
inspected by a doctor, and I, I want to, I'm using the word inspected rather than examined because I think it's a more accurate uh, description of what happened. At, at night, under a searchlight, with armed guards standing around and outside in the freezing cold, uh, just to make sure that they were medically able to handle the trip to Guantanamo in the plane. This was what at least happened to our clients. It may have happened to others. And, and each of them talked about being inspected at two different times, presumably once on the first flight uh, to Incralic and then going from Incralic to Guantanamo, which was a much longer flight. And then the planes landed and the men were taken off the flights and put into what, what we all remember seeing, orange jumpsuits, in outdoor uh, outdoor cells, which really much more resembled cages, and that was that was where they were uh, when Guantanamo started. And you know, th this is we're talking now January of 2002, so very very early in the base's life. So later on, they they uh, built new buildings exactly. to house the prisoners. Exactly. So in, initially, uh, you can imagine that this that the outdoor jails were put up very very quickly, with no, with not much advanced planning. And, and remember, the, the military people who would have been there all would have been told that we're bringing in terrorists, that we're bringing in dangerous men, we're bringing in men who are going to try to kill you. And you've got to, you've, you've got to keep this in mind. I always, I always analogized it to. I don't know if you remember that TV show called Hill Street Blues. And it I used, do. And every, it, it, the, 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 the cops used to meet in the patrol room, and as they were as they were going out, their commander would always warn them to be careful out there. They're bad guys. The same thing happened at Guantanamo every day as the troops would meet before they would go to take care of these guys and to guard them. They were told repeatedly by their command structure who they had been trained to believe or at least obey that these were dangerous guys and that they were going to hurt them. That was in part responsible for some of the, the probably the, the, the colder and more difficult treatment. Well, regardless, they're trained to take orders. Exactly. And they did. And, you know, and, and they should have. And in part, it was to protect themselves. So picture January, February, March 2002. Flights are coming in with men who are taken prisoner. We're still in the stage where we have just this huge volume of intelligence suggesting that people might be dangerous and very, very little ability to critically analyze that intelligence to determine if it's accurate, if it's right or not. And it's, this, in, this information is simply piling up. These records are, are attached to these guys. So each of them now develops a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a security file that says either you knew this person who might have been associated with bin Laden or you stayed at this location, which was known to house people loyal to bin Laden, or you might have had... Uh, you might have made a telephone call to this person who was known to be part of bin Laden's team. All that information now is is at Guantanamo, and it's available to the interrogators. The and it's available at some at some reduced level to the guards. They are all told a little bit about these guys enough to protect themselves. At least you hope they are. The problem is, if you cycle through in nine months, or even if you're a guard and you cycle through in a year and a half. What, what is the likelihood that you're going to be the one after interrogating someone eight or 10 times to say, gee, I don't think, I don't think he knows anything. I think we have the wrong guy. Sure. Yeah. Well, they, you hide behind the law because you're taking orders. Right. Who wants to rock the boat, right? You, there's information in the file that says someone might be dangerous. The problem is this could be something that uh, it could be something that was said to collect a reward. There were, there were lots of people who were at Guantanamo because they were passing through villages in Pakistan and Afghanistan 
probably running away from us, right? They're, they're, in, they're in the place, they're working with bin Laden. Then September 11th happens. They're not part of it, but they hear about it. They know that all hell is going to break loose and they run. Right. So the reward was an incentive for everyone and anyone to turn whoever in. There's a, there's a stranger with a gun coming through your village because he's running away from Tora Tora where bin Laden was held. You could get $5,000 if that guy's a terrorist from the United States. What's, what do you think you might do? Besides that, who wants a stranger with a gun running through their village? I think so. I think, eliminate him at any cost. Right. Although, in honesty, I think back then there were lots of strangers oh, with lots guns, of guns yeah. <laughs> running, running through the village. Yeah. yeah, running those those villages had lots of guns. If yeah. you didn't have a gun, you were an exception. But as as a result, we end up with lots of people being put into Guantanamo. There's there there are small snippets of information suggesting that these guys are bad, and so the process of interrogating them starts. The bad information is there. And what you see over time is there's a, there's an assumption, I believe, that the information, that the intelligence information is accurate. We all want to believe our government. No one critically tests that information. And in part, no one wants to be the one to rock the boat. You know, Nobody wants to be the one to release the person who's then going to go out and do something. We can also justify it. If we got 10 real bad guys at the cost of one good guy, well, so be it because none of us can afford another 9-11. And that's, that's exactly right. That's, that's, that's the kind of mindset. And we have to remember that the military personnel at the base, we're all being, you know, we're being fed uh, what was essentially supportive propaganda to support the action that was going on. Now, in addition to the interrogation, uh, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, which was the, you know, the enhanced interrogation techniques. Those, unfortunately, uh, as I mentioned, as I mentioned in the earlier part of the interview, were used indiscriminately. I love your choice of words, enhanced interrogation. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go with the, uh, the, the, the euphemistic sense of what the Bush administration unfortunately pushed on us. But certainly, there has, it has been established that some of these techniques, and certainly Senator McCain, uh, very, very bluntly said that these techniques amounted to torture. Right. And that's and they have been rejected. The, the techniques were weren't. But, you know, one of the things that happened, for example, I mean, waterboarding uh, seems to have occurred at Guantanamo, but it, it didn't occur broadly. Only a very few people were waterboarded. Uh, I, I think the number might be as small as three, but those people were waterboarded 70 or 80 or 90 times, because obviously, if you haven't gotten the information you need out of the 71st time, on the 72nd waterboarding, you're probably going to get it because that's that's the way that's the way things were done. And, and again, I think when the, when the dust settles and there's an ability to look back objectively on what happened in terms of intent enhanced interrogation, there'll be a lot to learn. I mean, after being waterboarded, I, I just can't believe that they didn't try to figure out what information they were looking for and just give it to them. Just make it up. Well, I think to to some degree, part part of what happens after that that many in interrogations, especially by a technique like waterboarding, uh, is you start to suffer uh, mental psychological breakdowns. You end up with PTSD symptoms. I mean, we had, we we were able to have uh, a very very capable psycho psychiatrist who'd actually been at Guantanamo, uh, professor from the University of uh, of Hawaii at the time, who prepared uh, what were what were examinations that we were able to give 
through written questions that we asked to, to our clients and then relayed the answers back. And he was able to assess that all of them were suffering from varying degrees, sometimes very seriously, PTSD. Well, and imagine, imagine that you're cut off from people you, that you can't talk to your family. And my decisions are which beach bar to go to. Exactly, exactly. So now we're in the, we're in the position where these guys are having, uh, they're, they're being regularly interrogated. And this went on for years that they were being interrogated, asked the same questions, most likely giving the same answers. You have these rounds of enhanced interrogation when someone comes through, let's play loud rock and roll, let's cut off the heat, let's amplify the heat, let's do flashing lights, let's do no lights. I mean, any, almost an in, almost in unlimited possibility of combinations. It was not applied, uh, I think it was probably not applied as thoughtfully and as rationally as it could have been, in part because this is still, this was a reactionary time for us. But in, in 2004, the Supreme Court issued a couple of decisions one uh, which allowed, which which talked about the kind of habeas corpus rights that American citizens would have. And this was because, I don't know if you remember, but at the time there was a guy who was held overseas and was, was considered to be the American Taliban. Uh, he, he, his case essentially went to the Supreme Court and the court said, uh, you can't, you, you can't, uh, you have some rights to a hearing. You've I got to get some. Think if that guy was he from Oregon? Maybe I don't I, remember. But yeah, I vaguely remember that. I don't remember. And and at the same time, the court said that the habeas corpus statute uh, applied to people held at at Guantanamo because there is, along with the constitutional right, there's a statutory right. So that happens in 2004. At the time, human uh, several several leading human rights groups had been watching Guantanamo. Most of the world only knew what was coming out of the propaganda from uh, the Bush administration. These groups had been had been watching cases. One of them was the uh, Center for Constitutional Rights. The other was a was a group uh, called Reprieve. Those organizations reached out to I don't know how many a dozen, fifteen, twenty five law firms immediately upon the issuance of the decisions, and said, "Could you please take pro take on clients pro bono?" and file cases in federal court in the United States. And the, the reasoning was once the Supreme Court had declared that for these people, these two in these two cases that there were rights, the fear was that the government was going to then take all the prisoners and bring them somewhere else, to, that they would get them out of the way where they couldn't be reached. Because remember, uh, one of the reasons that they could be reached under the statute was because we had this long, essentially eternal lease at Guantanamo to stay as long as we wanted. Now, um, we, my colleagues and I filed, filed a case almost immediately. We were asked to do it. We went in, there were a dozen other law firms around the country, uh, and, and lawyers, sometimes individual lawyers, sometimes small groups of lawyers who brought these cases so that by, I think by sometime in June, the Guantanamo decision probably came out in, in, uh, in June of 2000 and, uh, 2004, the Supreme Court typically issues some of the most difficult and controversial cases just before it leaves town for the summer. And that's what happened in this instance. It was the end of June. By sometime in July, these cases have been filed. And now we're, we're headed to court for hearings before judges in Washington, D.C. How many times were you in Guantanamo Bay? I started, uh, we started our case in uh, July. I got my security clearance, I think, by September or October, because remember, we weren't allowed to meet our clients unless the government gave us permission to go with security clearance. And in early December, I made my first trip. And by uh, by 2013 or 2014, I think I was 
into my sometime between 35 and 40 trips down. Wow. The, the reason I asked, you mentioned pro bono, but you had to have some sort of funding to pay for your flights and your housing and stuff. Was it, were there private funds or donations or how did that work? Well, the, uh, the lawyers who did this work with only a couple of exceptions, all were working on a pro bono basis. That means uh, they covered, they did the legal work without charging anybody. Right, your hours, you're they, not paid for your, for your actual covered for the work hours. hours. They didn't, and they paid for their own, they paid for their own travel. Remember, out of pocket. Out of pocket. Wow. They paid for their uh, interpreters because remember, hardly any of these men spoke any English and it was necessary for purposes of developing cases to hire interpreters, again, who had government security clearance. It makes my, it makes my, I think it makes the, the colleagues that were with me, it makes the, the firm that I had the privilege to work for. It makes the hundreds of other lawyers around the country who stepped up, including including many, many public defenders who's, who offered to come in and represent these men. And public defenders are already federal employees. They were government paid lawyers who stepped in to do this work. Was it at least a good uh, a promotional effort for your firm? Um, that's a that, that's a tricky I mean, question. We hard uh, to say. We we won the case. You know, ultimately, uh, we while we were initially thrown out of court on our uh, on our initial hearing, uh, we appealed that case. And over the course of a couple of years, we ended up before the Supreme Court. Because part of I mean, part of what was happening here, Franco, was was really interesting. The Supreme Court, as I said in two thousand and four said that the, that the statute of habeas corpus protected these men. So Congress did what any good Congress would do. It changed the law. Well, simplify my question. I mean, I, I know you wouldn't represent Ted Bundy because you want to see him get released. You represent Ted, Ted Bundy, which would, I guess that would probably be pro bono as well. And the reason for that, I would think, would, would be to basically advertise your firm to, to get your name out there? No, it's it's right. pro pro so pro bono publico uh, has been a tradition in the United States since before the country was founded. I mean, for, I'll give you an example. Uh, you've heard of the Boston Massacre, of course. The Boston Massacre was you know British soldiers shooting down Americans. The lawyer for the British soldiers in the Boston Massacre was John Adams who was the second president, right? He did that pro bono, didn't okay. charge him. So the tradition of representing someone who you, who might publicly be considered reprehensible has been a part of legal tradition in our culture forever. Are you sometimes legally, legally forced to represent people? Uh, like, you know, if people need, need some representation, they can't afford it. Or... In, in, the, in, a, in the criminal context, people are entitled to lawyers, and we, 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 we provide lawyers. And that's some of the work that the public defenders that I talked about. Like a do. public defender, yeah. Exactly. But here, pro bono is voluntary. Pro bono is something that lawyers do because, it, because it's the right thing to do. There was, you know, was there publicity that came out of this case? There, there certainly was some. I mean, I, I, will, I will tell you honestly that there was some concern at, at the start. You know, it's easy now. To, to think about getting good news from Guantanamo, that we we have a process, as I'm sure many firms do, of at least deliberating a little bit before you take on a politically controversial case. I'm sure it led into some negative publicity as well. Right. There were there were you know there were efforts uh, by by people to demonize the lawyers who took on this work, and there was co some concern that clients would have thought that this was the wrong thing to do. I never gave it a second thought to detain anything Guantanamo. 
they were terrorists. Fuck them. I never, never gave it a second thought. Right. And that's, and we now, we now know, fortunately for us, uh, the vast majority of our clients, perhaps all of them were really supportive uh, because one of the things that, that my firm did is we, we believe in doing pro bono work. Uh, we, we take on things like that. I think, I think you, you and I were speaking a little bit earlier you know, one of the one of my predecessors at the firm was Joe Welch, who represented the Army in the Army McCarthy hearings. And that's again, you take that on a, on a pro bono basis and you do the work because it's the right thing to do for the country. How, how were you able to, to communicate with the clients? With great difficulty, because when, particularly when things started, we could write letters, but the government was looking at a lot of the stuff that went in. We had to make sure that, that we had the protection of, of privileged communication with our client. You know, we take that for granted here. These guys were held by the military. This was before Google Translate, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Before. Yeah. So we had we had hired translators. And that gets back to your earlier question. So, you know, I was fortunate. I was working for a firm with, you know, 800, 900, 1,000 lawyers. So the fact that, you know, 20 or 25 of us were working on a case like this, the lights could still stay on because we we had clients that we were working for who could pay the bills, but this this for a firm that has a, a huge uh, a huge and very very respected history of doing pro bono work was at, at the time and it may still be the, the biggest uh, most certainly most expensive pro bono effort that we'd ever taken on because we had uh, we had to do the case prep work which meant you had to go to Bosnia to investigate. We had uh, we had to get client people there to sign documents and to communicate with the clients. We got their wives to sign statements saying, "I want you to represent my husband." And we, we were able to take those papers and file in court because there's a requirement to get client signatures to do representation in Washington D.C. So the preliminary work took quite a bit of time. It may have taken a year or more. To, the preliminary work before you could actually represent the detainee. Oh, we did it. We did it as quickly as we we did it within a couple of months. Oh, really? We yeah. We were in court, but it, which you can do anything quickly if you're willing to invest and we you know my my partners in my firm invested money and we were able to we we had the best interpreter partly by luck but we we found the guy who turned out to be the the best interpreter most efficient most effective uh uh felice Bezri, who did real-time uh interpretation so instead of waiting until you finish a sentence when i'm in the middle of my sentence he starts talking to the client and we all learned to communicate with right. each other. And this was not with any fancy headphones. This was yeah, yeah. sitting across the table speaking. But we, you know, the firm invested the money. We had we had an initial an initial trial proceeding where we were thrown out. We had two rounds of appeals before the, the Circuit Court of Appeal in Washington. The, the, the law, as I said before, is changing. The court, the Supreme Court says, these guys have rights. It's like a ping pong game. Congress changes the law and takes away the rights. Supreme Court come back and said, you didn't change the rights properly. You tried to do that. Uh, you tried to do that ex post facto. You, you can't change the rights after they have them. Congress again tries to change the law. So we're, we're, we're litigating essentially with law changing all around us. The, the, the Congress did not want us to win with these guys. The Defense Department did not want us to win. And ultimately, this came down to whether the, the United States Supreme Court as an institution was going to uphold the Constitution. Because all, all we were saying is you cannot that under our constitution, men, regardless of their nationality, held on the military base of Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, are entitled to the protection of habeas corpus. And ultimately, uh, in June of 2008, the Supreme Court decided that yes, they were. 
were they protect, protected by any of the laws from their home country, from their the country that they were citizens? No, essentially, uh, some of them were from countries that really didn't have any laws. Some of them were from countries that probably had governments that you and I wouldn't want to be, we, we would not want to be in jail in any of those countries right. because of the way you'd be treated. But they were on a military base, so they were under the, they were under the absolute uh, unmitigated control of the United States. They're arrested in the name of war. Right. Not in the name of law. Well, inter you know, inter you, you raise another interesting point because they were not, uh, they were not considered prisoners of war, uh, and because of that, uh, they were they were treated as something they were treated as something less than prisoners of war, because they particularly uh, under some of the positions that were advanced at the time, I think largely through the office of Vice President Cheney and adopted by by President Bush, these men were not treated as as uh, as POWs. They were treated as something less, and by by making them something less we were essentially able to strip them or not give them the benefit of human rights protections that they otherwise would have had or POW protections that they otherwise would have had. I mean, the, the, I think the challenge and I hope the lesson that we learned during the Bush administration was to, President Bush tried to provide, tried to strip down the procedural protections that we had to give these men. And that was a mistake by, by doing that uh, we we sort of exposed uh, we we exposed our fears we exposed the, the worst side of us and and ultimately what the Supreme Court ruled was no you can't take away habeas corpus rights you can't do by fiat what the Constitution has established so after after June of 2008 we now we won the case but we only won in the Supreme Court all we had then was the right to go to court so flash forward in 2004 to 2008. We've been we've, we've spent millions of dollars on uh, on fees, on travel, on interpreters, on court fees, court filings, uh, discovery fights with the government. Now we're located. You know, now we're going to court in Washington. And between uh, July first and the middle part of November, that's when we were able to prepare our case. Because remember, we had never been told why these guys were being held. Now, once you made it to court, were the decisions made solely by the judge, or was there a jury? So these are um, habeas corpus proceedings are not jury proceedings. They're they're actually they're not criminal. They're civil. So we were and we were not in fact defending these guys. We were forcing the United States to justify why it was holding them. So these are these are cases that are decided by a judge, uh, and there were there were initially. Uh, I think 10 or 12 judges who drew the different cases. There were 14 cases initially. When, once we won in the Supreme Court, hundreds of cases were filed. So it went from the first dozen that were there when we went up to the Supreme Court to uh, more, than 100, more, than, more than 200 cases ultimately. The government decided to hold back. They stayed all the cases, which means they just said, nothing's going to happen in any of these cases except ours. So the decisions were made according to what was printed in the law books, not according to any decency or human rights. Right. You, what we were arguing for protection essentially under the constitution, what we were, what we were arguing, the government had, for example, set up administrative hearings, the kind that you might have to dispute a parking ticket, except this administrative hearing didn't, didn't uh, establish whether you had to pay a $25 fine. This established whether you could be held for the rest of your life at Guantanamo. 
and and at this proceeding you couldn't have a lawyer and you could have you could have someone represent you from the government but he wasn't trained as a lawyer he was he was instructed to represent you as a soldier and this person uh this person could not tell you the evidence against you because it was considered classified even if it was your words you couldn't be told what the allegation was against you so that was the procedure that the government tried to say the government essentially said look we gave them a hearing and the hearing determined that we could hold them and this was essentially a farce and you can actually go online uh, and listen to these cases you can you can find these these security hearings that the government held on the internet and you can hear some of the conversations where the military officers who were acting as decision makers and the military personnel who were acting as representatives are almost apologetic and it's 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 embarrassing as an american to listen to this stuff but it it does show you what happens when we try to strip away fundamental protections that should belong there Have you got something to say? Then use your superpowers and download the Anchor FM mobile app, A-N-C-H-O-R. That's our host. Search Tropical Paradise Waits, then tap voice message. Or email me directly, francogringo13 at gmail.com. That email address is printed in the episode notes. Smart people listen to podcasts. Tell your friends, we're at the top of Google. Tropical Paradise Waits is presented by Elusive Media. New shows on Sundays. I look forward to hearing you listen. Hasta la semana que viene. Adios. Ten cuidado si feliz. Ciao, baby. Today's credits are as follows. Thank you to our program director, Don Alejandro de la Vega. Our editor and fact checker, they'll never know. Our chairperson, Wilma Buttfit. Fleet managers, Lisa Carr. Our charm consultant today is the always charming Miss Inga Tooth. Tiki Bar Reviews by Hassan Ben Sober. Our favorite divorce attorney, Carmine, not yours. Our credit counselor is, Max Stout. And our fashion designer today, Hugh Jass. And of course, our download counter, Adam Ilion. If you enjoyed the show, help us continue by scrolling down and clicking support for this podcast.